protein. <coughs> Good morning, High Point Church. So, so Pastor Nick, it'll take a long time to get used to it. Pastor Nick um, is on vacation. He's on a well-deserved vacation. And he's asked for me to, to sub for him. And um, why don't we just uh, start uh, this morning in prayer. Dear Lord, we are glad to be in your house uh, to worship you and to consider your, your goodness to us and to the whole world. And Father, we want to lift up uh, our senior pastor, Nick and Lexi, as they are on a short respite, a time to relax and reconnect with their children. We pray that um, you refresh them and then bring them back safely here uh, to serve you at High Point Church soon. In Jesus' name we pray. Let all God's people say amen. Um, so this morning... We are going to continue in a series that Nick started called The Gospel Through the Bible. And um, uh, we are showing that Jesus is the link between every part of the Bible and ourselves. Um, one of my uh, favorite books when I was studying theology in school was this book called According to Plan by Graham Goldsworthy. Graham would say this. He'd say that in this series, we are laying out our biblical theology. That is to say, we are studying the unity of the message of the Bible. Uh, and we're going to be looking this morning about how God rules his people, specifically through the Ark of the Covenant. We're going to be looking at um, 1 Samuel chapters 1 in particular. From a close reading of chapter 1 of 1 Samuel, it's not an overstatement to conclude that God ruled Israel through his person, that is the king, through his presence that was symbolized in the ark, as well as through his promise, in specific the Davidic covenant. First and foremost, the king of Israel was to be an agent of God. He was God's intermediary, selected to govern the people in a manner that pointed to Yahweh, the self-existent Lord of Israel. The king would do this in this way. He would rule according to God's laws and commands. He wouldn't make up his own decrees, his own sense of morality or government. He would rule according to the government and the laws that he was given through Moses uh, from, from the Lord himself. And his job was to be God's representative and to lead the people in righteousness. You see, God ruled Israel through the king. Second of all, God ruled Israel through his presence. After God had given Moses the law, and instructed, he instructed Moses to make a sanctuary, a special tent or tabernacle, where he would dwell among his people. And the centerpiece of this tabernacle was the ark of the Lord. This ark was a, a box made of acacia wood, overlaid with gold on the inside and on the outside. 
on the top of the ark was something holy known as the mercy seat. Uh, the, the golden cherubim that you see there on the slab were hammered out of the same piece of gold that the cover was. And the wings of the cherubim stretched over the most mercy seat and touched each other. And the faces of the cherubim didn't look upward or forward at the Lord. Their faces were pointed downward in reverence to God. It was here between the cherubim that God spoke to Moses. And it was at the mercy seat once a year where the priest came with blood to make atonement for the people. Through the ark of God, God ruled his people with his presence. Thirdly, God ruled his people through his promise. God made a covenant with David. He said to David, I'm going to give you a dynasty. You will never fail to have a son to sit upon his throne. Through David, God keeps his promises to Abraham, a couple of major promises. He says to Abraham, to your descendants, I will give the land of Canaan. And he says, I will make you a great nation. Now, under David's leadership and also under his son Solomon, Israel was never greater. He used David's obedience and the spirit that he put in David to lead the people in righteousness, and God made Israel great. They were famous throughout the world. Kingdoms and queens would come to visit to look upon the grandeur and the greatness that was in Israel. Nonetheless, uh, God told David that he would have a son on his throne if the son would keep his laws and decrees. Now we know that his son Solomon broke the very first of the commandments when he became an idolater, worshiping the gods of his wives. So it really wasn't until the birth of David's descendant, Jesus Christ, that where God really brought about and fulfilled the Davidic covenant. You see, Jesus was the son of David by blood and also the son of God by the spirit. He was the only king of Israel that ever kept the entire law and served God with his whole heart. You see, God ruled Israel through the Davidic covenant. In this morning's sermon, I am going to expound upon how God rules Israel through the ark. Nick has asked me to come and preach again in mid-July. At that time, I'm going to talk about how God rules Israel through the kingship in general and the Davidic covenant in specific. There's a couple of major figures that have significant ministries involving the ark, and they are Eli and Samuel. And um, you can read more about their story in 1 Samuel 1 through chapters 25. It's fascinating reading. I'm going to tell you a bit of their story here this morning as we talk about the influence on the ark, on Israel, and on us. Now, Eli was the second judge, second to the last judge in Israel. The Lord was not pleased with Eli's leadership. His sons, Phinehas and Hophni, they served alongside him. And the tabernacle at this time was located in Shiloh, about 20 miles from north of Jerusalem. This is what the word of God says about Phinehas and Hophni. It says they were worthless men who did not know the Lord. 
what an indictment. Eli was God's chief judge, and he was the mediator. He was the one to lead the people in righteousness. His own children had positions of high authority within the kingdom, and they didn't know God. When it came to making the burnt offering, the people would come with their uh, meat, with bulls and rams to offer to the Lord. And this was their offense. The scripture said that the fatty meat, the choice part of the meat, was to go to the Lord, was to be burnt on the offering. And then everything else the priests could take. Now these priests put themselves before the Lord. They told people when they came, listen, give me the meat and I'll choose what I want. And if they wouldn't just give it to them, they would take it by force. Secondarily, there were women who came to the, the tabernacle area and they were serving outside the tabernacle. And they were known to, to solicit these women and to sleep with the women who were serving in the art of, at, at, the, at the tabernacle. And so they had turned the house of God into a place of corruption and sexual promiscuity. And this was a total affront to a holy God. Let me update the story for you just a little bit. Let's say we have a senior pastor here in Dane County, and he has two sons that are on ministry, on the staff full time. And the pastor begins to get reports from the people that the sons are taking money out of the offering plate. And the sons are soliciting and flirting uh, with the women in the church who are serving in ministry regularly. And these sons are married, and this is their behavior. What would you think that the senior pastor would do? Uh, just, just off the top of my mind, it would seem to me that once the senior pastor found out that these allegations were true, he would at least temporarily suspend their duties, right? He would take them and put them aside. Why? So, so that he could uphold God's righteousness, so that he could really take um, um, care of the flock. What should a leader of God do? Jesus said to us that the Son of Man has not come to be served, not to abuse the flock, not to take resources from the flock, but he came to serve the flock, to give his life for, for it. So, so at a minimum, he needed to protect the flock. And then lastly, for his own reputation, that is of the senior pastors, he needed to uphold his integrity by doing the right thing. So what did our friend Eli do? The scripture says that when he received the bad reports on his sons, that he just went to them and tried to restrain them, and their sons dismissed him. They basically told their dad, whatever, I'm going to keep doing whatever I want to do. Now, because this is Father's Day, I got to take a golden opportunity to talk very briefly about how, how dad should be parents and how, um, really, how parents should behave in the household of God. Um, this, was the, this was the major issue at, at, at stake here. Forgive me, this is a little more sensitive than I thought it was to touch. So here we are. What was God's major problem with Eli? Well, he, this is what he told Samuel to deliver to Eli as a message. For I, God, told him, Samuel, excuse me, Eli, that I would judge his family forever because of the sin he knew about. His sons made themselves contemptible, and he failed to restrain them. 
So as we think about parenting today, there's some things that I want to just share with you. The first thing I want to share with you comes from Deuteronomy 6 and 7. This is about parents and how we should home, home train. If you're a parent or a grandparent, raise your hand for me real quick. Amen. So that's, that's a good number of us. That's about 75%. Um, this text says Moses gave to the people, impress on them, that is the word of God. Have the parents impress on the children when they sit down at home, when they walk alongside the road, when they lie down, and when they get up. The point here is that in the practical, everyday, ordinary things of life, how are we to teach our children about God? That's what we're talking about here. Ordinary, everyday, practical habits. Not what goes on in the children's ministry with Kathleen. Not what goes on in our youth ministry. What parents do to build Christ, to build the Lord within their kids. And uh, I'm reminded of, uh, uh, my kids were about 12 and 7 years of age. And we were at a KFC restaurant one Sunday after church. Just any ordinary Sunday after church, I took my kids to the restaurant. We went up to the counter, ordered our chicken stuff, sat down. And just, you know, as our normal routine would be, we held hands and, and said a prayer. And then we just started talking. I don't know what we were talking about. Maybe we were talking about school or maybe we were talking about the sports they were involved in. About 10 minutes into the conversation, a nice looking gentleman, uh, elderly fellow gets up and approaches our table. And I see him coming to our table and he says, he interrupts me. He says, you, you have such well-behaved children. I said, these guys? He didn't know them. I said, <laughs> I said, <laughs> Um, he said, you have such well-behaved children. Yeah, uh, if, would you mind if I gave them a little gift? I said to myself, it depends on what gift you're going to give them. But, <laughs> but I said, you know, yeah, yeah that would be fine. So he reaches into his pocket. He pulls out two silver dollars. He gives one to Jason. He gives one to Jared and just smiles and walks away. Now, I'm a parent, and I'm saying to myself, boy, this is a teachable moment, if ever, right? So I say to myself, man, that was a nice gentleman. I think that guy probably was a Christian. What do you guys think? He said, yeah, Dad, you know, well-behaved, you know, just blessing people out of nowhere. That's the kind of stuff Jesus' people would do. I said, isn't it amazing that God would give you guys a blessing just for living in peace just for, just for doing ordinary things in peace and in, in obedience, God would bless you in this way. And they looked at each other and they said, yeah, that's kind of cool, Dad. And then they, and so we go home, they, they go home, we go into the house, they go into their mom, and they say, Mom, Mom, we just, man, just gave us these coins. My point is this. In the ordinary, everyday areas of life, we need to look for opportunities to affirm our children and to teach our children about the love and the grace of Jesus Christ. That's the first thing. That leads me to my second point, which is that we need to rejoice in the Lord in front of our children. Now, just recently, I had the chance to serve on the Youth Pastor Search Committee with a wonderful young woman named Becca, Becca Einhardt. Now, Becca, I'm told, uh, just graduated from Middleton High School, and she's on her way to Cedarville University, a Christian college in Ohio. Well, on our search committee, what Becca did was help us interview the candidates. Every candidate that we um, interviewed, she was a part of the team. 
and she asked excellent questions. In fact, when we, when we had a question in terms of, well, what did you think? We had to turn to Becca. She was the only teenager in the area. Becca, what did you think? What did you think about this person? And she was always gracious with every candidate. She was always respectful with all of the folks of us who were on. I see Emily and others who were on. My, and they're shaking their heads. Amen. What I want to say is when we see God using one of our teens with this kind of responsibility to help select the pastor for our church and to do it with grace and in order in the spirit of God, that is a time for rejoicing. We need to rejoice over Becca. We need to rejoice over our children when we see them obeying the Lord our God. We need to do what Ken Blanchard says. Ken Blanchard in 1992 wrote a book called The One Minute Manager. The main premise of that book is that you need to catch your employees doing something right. That was the best way to train them and to, and to help them be successful. What I'm saying to you as a parent, as you teach them about God in your homes, that one of the things you want to do is catch them doing something right in Christ Jesus and affirm them for that. Now, this third point I want to give you is typically the most hard, the hardest one for parents, especially modern parents, to do. And this has to do with insisting that your children respect your authority as parent and then the authorities that are around them. Now, this is very vital because it's in the fifth commandment where God tells us that we need to honor our mother and father. And then Paul picks up on this in Romans 6, 1 through 3. He also picks up on it again in Colossians 3 and 20 when he's teaching us as Christians how to live as God's people you know, in the household of God. He gives this instruction that parents ought to teach their children to obey the Lord, that we're to admonish him in Christ. Now, it's a very interesting thing uh, king Edward VIII, um, he abdicated the throne. He was king for less than a year, abdicated the throne. But in 1957, and he married an American woman, so he spent some time in the U.S. 1957, he, he gave this quote to Look Magazine in the United States. Very interesting uh, comment. I want to make sure I get it right because I think it's very insightful. This is what he said. The thing that impresses me the most about America is the way the parents obey their children. Now, this was a backhanded, sarcastic comment that talked about how, in his opinion, and compared to his experiences in, in Europe, in London, how parents tended to give in to the wills of their children. Now, I'm a Generation X person. And I, I, I try not to think that everything was better back in the day. But some things, I think, were better back in the day. Here's one. My mom's generation, I think, were better than subsequent generations about teaching their children to respect them and to respect other authorities. Growing up in my parents' household from the earliest times that I can remember as a, as a person you know, speaking, that if I ever said a cross word to them or if they gave me a, a chore to do and I didn't do it with a good attitude, it was always met with a verbal rebuke. And they didn't, if I, if I did it at 6 o'clock in the morning or 8 o'clock in the morning, didn't matter, any day, any time, it was met with a rebuke. And if my parents ever got a report from teachers 
that her five children were disrespecting teachers in school and not doing what they were supposed to do, you better believe you were in big trouble. And we used to live in this two-flat house in Chicago, very typical house in Chicago. And my grandmother lived on the first floor. And from time to time, she would watch the children, and she was from the South. And she would tell my father, my father's name was Elsie, if, if we weren't behaving well, she would tell Elsie, she said, Elsie, she said, your kids won't mind me. And that was a bad news. That was bad news. My dad was a World War II vet, and he was known to be a strict disciplinarian, if you know what I mean. <laughs> but here's the main point. Our, we are, as parents, as grandparents, we are stewards. These kids do not belong to us. They belong to God. These kids that are running around here in these halls, God expects godly offspring, and it's our responsibility as parents to make sure that we teach our children the benefits of living under authority. Because how can we expect that they are going to serve and love a God that they do not see if they do not serve and love their parents? So we need to insist that our kids respect and obey us. Training your children in spiritual things can be hard work. I know this, my wife and I know this firsthand. And disciplining your children when they go astray is unpleasant. I can tell you at least two or three times I had to, I was in tears at night after having to apply discipline to my children. It's painful on parents. But the only thing worse than providing your children with proper, appropriate, and timely discipline is the pain and anguish that is suffered when you don't do it. This is precisely the kind of thing that happened to Eli. God sent an unnamed prophet to Eli to tell him of his upcoming judgment, and it was not a pretty picture. The prophet told Eli that in due time, his wicked sons would die on the same day. Not only that, that Eli would never have a man in his line that would ever reach adulthood. They would all die in the prime of their lives. That's pretty stiff judgment. How, what was Eli's response? The scripture is silent. No repentance, no prayer, no pleading with God to change his mind. No, he went about his normal affairs until later Samuel, a young priest, a young apprentice in his household, um, heard a word from the Lord. Now, during Eli's leadership, it was said that revelation from God was rare. So God wasn't speaking much to Israel, and I'll talk to you about, I think, why that was in a moment. But God called to, to Samuel for the very first time in his young life. And Samuel was sleeping in his bed, and Eli was in his room. And Samuel heard something, and he thought it was Eli, so he ran to Eli and said, Samuel, here I am. And, and Eli said, I didn't talk to you. Go back to your bed. This happened three different times. The third time Eli figured it out, oh, it's probably God speaking to him. Okay, this time, Samuel, if you hear this again, say, here I am, Father. You know, your servant is here. Speak. So sure enough, fourth time it happens again. Uh, Samuel responds appropriately, and he gets a word from God. He basically says, the time is up for Eli. I'm going to bring the judgment on him because he respects his children more than he respects me. And so Eli was a little, Samuel was a little bit nervous. He didn't want to tell Eli about this. He went to bed. The next day, Eli comes to him and he said, he made him swear. Listen, 
you need to tell me everything that God said. And sure enough, he tells him the bad news. Samuel says, may the Lord do as he please. He is the Lord. What a cop out. Well, here's what happens. In Israel, about this time, the people are busy serving idols. Um, Nick has talked about in the past the worship of Baal, the storm god, the worship of the Ashtoreth, the fertility god, and the, and the uh, deplorable practices that went along with this worship. Well, this was rampant in the land. The truth was, from the time of Joshua, even to the time of the first king of Israel, Saul, the people went through this pattern of idolatry, repentance. God would send a judge, a time of peace, and they would do it again. And in the midst of Israel, during Eli's reign, the people there was rampant, apparently from the scripture, idolatry going on. Well, what God would do is he would use the surrounding nations to discipline them. He would send them over their, their borders. They would kill their soldiers. They would take their cities. And God would use this pattern to discipline his people, hoping to bring them back to repentance. So in Eli's time, the Philistines showed up once again to fight at the borders. And the Israel went out in battle, 4,000 of them slaughtered. They were surprised. They were said, well, how is it that we couldn't stand before our people? Maybe what we need to do is get the ark. We need to get the ark and bring it out before them. They remembered back in Joshua, when Joshua went out against Jericho with the Levites and marched across the city. They knew that God moved in power in the ark. Maybe if we could just send the ark out. That would do it. But the, so they, what they do is they bring the ark out before the people. But they didn't consider what the real problem was. Here's what the real problem was. Deuteronomy 6.3, Moses is talking to the people, a word from him, from the Lord. Hear, O Israel, and be careful to obey so that it may go well with you. And that you may increase greatly in the land, flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, promised you. The Lord promised Israel that he would sustain and protect them in their land forever if they would remain wholly devoted to him. But if they did not, here was the curse. If you ever forget the Lord your God and follow other gods and worship and bow down to them, I testify against you today that you will surely be destroyed. Like the nations the Lord destroyed before you, so you will be destroyed for not obeying the Lord. So they, they thought their problem was they just needed to, you know, rub their hands on the genie and God. But the problem was their idolatry and their like, lack of fidelity to the Lord their God. So what do they do? They get the ark. They get their wicked priests, Phineas and Hophni. They go out to the battle lines against the Philistines, and they get wiped out. 30,000 of them die. And what's, what's worse, and along at the same time, the wicked priests, Hophni and Phineas, die on the same day, just as the Lord declares. A messenger runs from the battlefield to, to Eli's hometown in front of him and says to him, the news, your sons have died, and the ark has been captured. Eli, sitting on the chair, falls over backward, breaks his neck, and is dead. Phineas's wife is in, goes into labor, and she has her nurses around her. 
She gives birth to a son and she dies. She names her son Ichabod, meaning no glory. And she says this to the nurses. She says, the glory of the Lord has departed from Israel. Must have been one of the lowest points in the history of the people. Woe to Israel when God chooses to fight for our enemies. And woe to us when we don't pay attention to our holy God. So the question here that you have to ask is this. What is going on here? The Philistines take the ark into their towns and they put it in the city of their god, Dagon. The next morning, Dagon, his head, he's fallen down before the Lord, before the ark. Dagon's on the floor. They figured it was wind. So the next day they come back and they put him back in his place. And this time his head is chopped off and his hands. Not only that, the Lord has broken out against the city. He has sent rats throughout the town to ravish their food, their food and on their bodies he's put tumors. There's a panic in the land because people are dying everywhere. They come up with a great idea. Okay, let's just move it. God is afflicting us here in Asdod. Maybe he won't afflict us in Akron. So they move the ark to Akron and the same thing breaks out. God just wipes the people out. And, and now they're about to move it to the third city. They're gonna move it to Gath. And the citizens of Gath are like, what are you trying to do? You trying to kill us? <laughs> no way. So they bring together their five kings. They bring them together and they come up with this idea. Listen. They get to the diviners and priests and they say, listen, what we need to do is send that thing back before it wipes us out. It's got to go back. And we can't send it back just solo. We got to put some peace offerings in there. So representing the five wicked kings, they put on their five tumors of gold and five tumors of rats. They have these, these statutes of the tumors and the rats. They put this funny. They put them in the cow. They put them on the car with the ark. And they say to them, if it goes up to Beth Shemesh, where the Israelites live, if it goes straight up, unattended, we'll just put them with the cow. If the cows go that way, then we'll know that this was from the Lord, that the Lord's hand was against us. But if it just wanders around, we'll know that this just happened to us by chance. What do you know? Straight up it goes up. It goes straight up into Israel, straight up into Beth Shemesh, stands by the house of someone named Joshua. Now, when the people saw the ark, when the Israelites saw the ark coming, they rejoiced. They knew that this was God's presence and it was being restored to their country. They took the cows in the ark. They sacrificed the cows on the altar. They had their Levites take the ark and, and put it on a, on a stone. They took the gold and set it apart, but then they left it there. Now the men of Beth Shemesh, they got curious and they peered inside God's holy ark. And this is what the scripture says. It says the Lord broke out in judgment against those men. It wiped out 50,000 of them. Some men came from a town called um, Kiriath-Jerim. They consecrated a priest named Eleazar. And the, the ark stayed there in peace for 20 years. The question I have for you is, and the question that we've got to grapple with is, what is God doing in, in 1 Samuel chapters 4 through 7, he is wiping out his people and he is wiping out the Philistines. He killed 50,000 in Beth Shemesh. 
And it is because, as I meditated through this, God wants us to know that he is a holy God. His holiness demands we cannot stand in God's presence without being holy. God is separate. That is to say, he is totally distinct from everything that he has made. Everything that's common, like the air and the sky and the sea, he's separate from that, certainly. And he's also separate from sin. God created all things, and he sanctified himself. He is completely opposite from all distinct, distinct from all that is made. Now, the other thing is God is transcendent. And I really love the way Tony and Nicole song. They sung a song today. And in their song, they said this. He said, your name is higher than the rising sun. We serve a transcendent God. He sits, I like the way Isaiah says it. He says it much better than I could. In the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah chapter 6, I saw the Lord seated on a throne. This is one of my wife's favorite scriptures. High and exalted. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, angels, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces. Even the holy angels couldn't look upon the glory of God in his temple. With two wings they covered their faces. They covered their feet. And with two they flew, and they sung a song. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. The scriptures tell us that the earth is his footstool. It is a trifling thing to our God, who transcends all that he has created. And not only is he a separate, sanctified God, not only is he a high, transcendent God, he is a morally perfect God. There are no impurities in him whatsoever. I like the way his word says it in Psalm 19. Teens and young kids, God's word is perfect. It will renew your soul. God's word is trustworthy. It will make you wise. It will bring wisdom to you. God's precepts, all these are synonyms for his word. Law, statutes, precepts. These are all synonyms for the word of God. God's precepts are, of the Lord are right, and they bring joy to our hearts so that when we see our children obeying God, it brings joy to us. So we serve a holy God. Now, the thing that made holy, that made Israel holy, was its relationship to God. God sanctified Israel and made them a separate, distinct nation because he revealed himself to them through his word, through the covenants, through Moses. He revealed himself to his people. That made them holy. God gave them the atoning sacrifice for their sins so that he could dwell among them. He gave them atonement because they were to be holy. And remarkably, God lives in our presence. 
And his presence makes us holy. Now, when we think about the awesomeness of God and how he demands holiness to be in his presence, the question I have for us is, how do we respond today as Christians to the holiness of God? How can we, who have not only been declared righteous because of the work of Jesus Christ, but we've also been sanctified, we've been given the Holy Spirit, It's like having the law, Jeremiah 31, poured into our hearts and into our minds. So we have the Holy Spirit working powerfully in us today, symbolizing God, not symbolizing really the presence and the power of God in earthen vessels. I like the way Paul talks about that. So we have treasure, but also we have this body of sin. So how can we be holy as God calls us to holy, to be holy? And that's what I want to leave you with today. I want to give you some ideas, some principles about how we as Christians should respond to the awesome holiness of our God. First thing is, you have to remember God's grace. God... Everything that we have in this church is through the grace of God. Um, when it became clear to, uh, clear to me that the elders were likely going to put me before you to vote uh, on me to be your associate pastor, there was one thing that was on my mind. I knew I was going to take a major pay cut. I was worried about the budget, and I didn't know how I was going to make it work. Further, I I knew my wife was going to have to go back to work. And she hasn't worked in 15 years. And she could could work. She's smart, got an MBA. She could work. But I knew she loves to be in ministry, in music ministry. I also knew she loved some other volunteer stuff she was doing. And I didn't want to disrupt her life. So that was really heavy on me until the grace of God moved in. And so after some service, wifey was in a bathroom here at church. And a woman struck up a conversation that she never met before. Her name was Clara. And she said, hey, do you work? And she said, no, I'm kind of a housewife, but I'm thinking about maybe getting a job. And she said, well, what did you do in the past? And Deborah shared it with her. And long story short, she decides that, hey, send me your resume. I'm looking, I've got this HR firm, a consulting firm. We help people who've been displaced get back to work. And I'm looking for somebody with your kind of talents. Why don't you send me your resume? So she does. And on the very day that the elders decide that I should be called to become pastor here. Wifey hears that she has this new job. But the blessing doesn't stop there. The grace of God doesn't stop right there. The, the, she, it wasn't just that she needed a job. She needed a job that would allow her to be able to raise her children and to live her life. So they had a flexible schedule that they would work with. And I kept hearing reports about how, how much they liked her and how much she likes her work. Now, to be fair, if you talk to her afterwards, she'll tell you, it's just a job. You know, I would rather, you know, my passion is to do this. But the blessing is that God has made a way for us. You know, he really will. If we follow him, if we will put him first, he will take care of all of our needs. I'm trying to tell you that you need to remember, if you want to be holy, you need to remember the love and the grace of God first. Second thing I want to tell you is that you need to be humble. 
Now, when the men of Beth Shemesh were being wiped out, they said this in 1 Samuel chapter 6, verse 20. They say this. They said, who can stand in front of this holy God? Well, the answer is clear. It's here in Isaiah 57, 15. It's also in Micah 6, 8. It basically says this. God does, he is transcendent. He is high and holy, but he lives with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit. He lives with us who repent. I'm convinced that one of the reasons that David was able to stay on the throne even after his gross sins and Saul was not able was that he quickly repented once he was confronted with his gross sin. Christians, you and I, we are repenters. I want to say that's what the holy church was known by. They were known by the fact that they would change their mind, that they would be humble before the kings and authority and certainly before God. So we are known for our humility. So we need to remember the grace of God and we need to repent to one another when we sin against each other and certainly to the Lord. The third thing we need to do is devote ourselves to obedience. I want to thank the entire church staff who were who put together the installation service for me. It was a great time for me for this reason. When I was, many years ago, when I really believed that God had called me to preach, I was scared. I was scared because I was doing life my own way and I had my own plan. And quickly, once I started um, preaching in the local churches and trying to go to school, I realized that you had to really be given to this work. The truth is, all of us are called to count the cost and follow Jesus. The costs are, 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 are nothing. They're meaningless in comparison to the glory that we receive from God and to his grace. It's meaningless what we leave for God, but we do need to leave it. So I had Pastor Lewis Love, who was a friend of mine, come and preach that message because I wanted to consecrate myself. We need to die daily to our way of thinking, to, to, the, to the worldliness the things that are contra what we know the scripture to teach. We need to, we need to lay that aside. And we need to make that decision every day. So the third thing about holiness, we have to remember the grace of God. We have to remember to be holy. But like David and like Samuel, we have to choose to devote ourselves wholly to the Lord our God. And this last one flows out of that is that we have to learn how to love the Lord. One of the reasons I love Pastor Nick's preaching is that when he preaches about the gospel, and he talks about things like substitutionary atonement, Maurice, and impassibility, when he talks about justification and sanctification by faith, he always brings to pass our gratitude that we serve God out of gratitude for the awesome things that he has done for us. Not only on the cross, not only through the spirit in us, but through the precious promises that we experience every day. That we serve God out of love and out of gratitude. It's the love of God that, that draws us to repentance. And it's the love of God 
that compels us to sanctify ourselves. And I love that about Pastor Nick's preaching. We can't live, we can't leave the response of gratitude out of our message of the gospel. It's crucial that we serve God because we love him. Now, after Eli died, Samuel became judge. And he told the people this. He said, if you will put down the asterisk, the fertility goddesses, the idols, if you will put down the bales, and if you will dedicate yourself to serving God, he's going to protect you, he's going to sustain you, he's going to fight the battles for you. If you will do this, God will be your God. And so the people, this resonates with them, and they repent, and they, they call a special feast, and they, they sacrifice, and they're repenting. And in the midst of this, the Philistines think this is a good idea at time to attack Israel. So they attack them. Bad move. Because when God sees his people on their knees, when God's people choose to be wholly devoted to him, God is going to support and sustain us. And that's what he does. He has a storm come. It, it confuses the, their army and an earthquake. And his soldiers go out, the Israel soldiers, they go out, and it's a mop-up job. It was no problem at all. God has went before them and really set the course, and they chase the Philistines back to their territory on the Mediterranean coast. Not only that, during Samuel's reign, the Scripture says that there was a time of peace in Israel. No nations invaded their borders. And I think that, that, uh, that there's something insightful for us in that. That as we move forward with this new vision, that as we consider to bring on a new youth pastor, that we focus our hearts on what God has done for us in the past and what he is doing for us in the, in the present. And we dedicate ourselves anew to serving him with our whole heart and soul. Because doesn't all the laws and the prophets, all the law that hinges on whether we will love the Lord our God with our whole heart and soul and whether we will love our neighbors as ourselves. Bow your heads. Lord, we thank you because you are a holy God. High lifted up, pure, perfect. And amazingly, Lord, you choose to make your home in our hearts. And you choose to be the Lord of our fellowship. That's an awesome privilege that we have. We thank you for that privilege. It overwhelms us. The grace that you have poured out on our heads is, uh, overwhelms us. And so today, we just want to thank you for all that you have done through Christ our Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.